Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self-Enlightened One. Uh, you'll all, <clears throat> I think, know about our, um, or my, um, struggle with the mole, Morris. <laughs> and after all my travail, he finally just left. No matter what I did, he decided to leave when he wanted to leave. And uh, recently, of course, you've seen me chase the chicken. So, <laughs> so uh, this is... Uh, the chicken, yes, we've, uh, Mark's very, you know, g- gone along the fence with all these um, other fencings, and, uh, but the chicken gets through. <laughs> and uh, even now, uh, we found, I found it sort of wandering around the garden. So, uh, to me, of course, this is a, a very good example of, the, uh, of our defilements. <laughs> and no matter how much we try to get rid of them they keep bouncing back so uh, I think um, it's a case of accepting the uh, the chicken at some point and uh, eventually just that you see it dies it will pass on <laughs> uh, just as a small excuse on my part um, last retreat uh, Letta, Letta was here she's a professional gardener and she planted all these seeds, you see. And when she saw the chickens, she said, well, it's going to eat all those seeds, you know. So that's why I've been making this effort to make it feel quite unwanted. And not with any hatred in my heart, you understand. <laughs> no, no, there's no version. No. So, um, yeah, some lots of questions, actually. I didn't realise they'd uh, piled up. The uh, first one is, you know, to do with this indulgence in pleasure, just leading to suffering, the process of it. Um, We just have to grasp the uh, essential mistake. Um, The essential mistake from the heart's point of view is that it's seeking happiness in the wrong place. There's nothing wrong with seeking happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. And this seeking happiness is coming from Uh, that within us which will eventually achieve the great happiness which is Nibbāna. But of course that which is seeking Nibbāna is itself um, deluded or else it wouldn't be in this mess. It's a paradox. It it is deluded. It's, It's fallen from a state of not knowing into a state of knowing but that knowing uh, we call delusion. And the mistake is that uh, happiness is to be found in the sensual world. By sensual world, we mean this physical body and mind. The physical body, the mind, the heart, and what it can give us with its contact with the outside world. So we enjoy beautiful views. If we didn't have eyes, if, you know, if, if we were uh, blind, uh, we wouldn't be able to enjoy that. See, so all our enjoyment is based upon the body 
including the brain. As you know, when the brain begins to malfunction, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's, then you also lose that capacity to even, seemingly, to even think and to, to image anything. So every, all our pleasures, you know, on this planet, on this, uh, is dependent on the body itself. And so seeking happiness is always through the body and what it does to the heart and mind, right? Which in Buddhist understanding is something separate. It's another, another form of energy, we can say. The Buddha talks about the mind-made body as opposed to this physical body. And uh, the disconnect between the suffering of pleasure and the joy of it is because the one comes after the other. And therefore people don't often make that connection, especially with boredom. So we have this phrase, variety is the spice of life. So what we do is we, we keep seeking for the next, you know, the next input that's going to make us go back to that original place where we felt happy. See? So you go on holiday, it was a great place, so you want to go back. You go back, uh, you know, it's not quite what it was, you get bored, so you come back, and then you think there's somewhere else to go. So if, if we look at our lives as this constant uh, movement towards what's going to really make us happy, lift us emotionally and intellectually, you know, if we're that way inclined, and uh, the boredom that comes from it. But we, we don't see that the boredom is actually... Um, a product of pleasure itself because a uh, product of the relationship we have to pleasure because no pleasure can give us the same buzz we always have to you know either increase it or find something similar to it or give it a break you know I mean if you were eating all the time it become really boring but the fact that we wait until the body signals some sort of appetite allows us to re-enter that pleasure syndrome and of course not not everything we eat has the same uh, the same lift for us so some food we eat we hardly even notice it just just passes through down the throat <laughs> you're just eating for eating sake so I mean that sort of mindlessness comes because of this compulsive behavior of seeking happiness in food seeking happiness in sex seeking happiness in holiday it doesn't matter what it is it just that's where you you form this this habitual uh, Nate, this this habit, and what we don't see is that pleasure and the joy that we get from pleasure has an inbuilt obsolescence. It's like in the I think it was in the sixties and seventies they talked about making sure that machines had inbuilt obsolescence, so that there'd be a turnover of manufacture. It was quite openly talked about. Now, of course, it's very unecological and not very green. But in those days, you thought, well, we'll make a car to last ten years full stop 15 years and then you've got to sell it so the machinery of, of you know of, of uh, manufacturing just kept churning over whereas they knew they could build cars for 50 years or whatever you know I mean I mean they are getting better I believe but anyway it was that sort of mentality that in a sense mirrors our seeking happiness in in the sensual world that uh, that not recognizing that boredom is a product of that indulgence is a big problem. You know, especially in rich countries where pleasure is easily attainable. And I'm not talking, you know, I'm talking about rich, but I'm just talking about the fact that you can just flick a switch and you're being entertained. 
and um, what it does is there's a deeper there's a deeper malaise because what it does is it it it, it always associates happiness with excitement and when you get too excited, you don't mind a bit of silence, a bit of quietness, a bit of loneliness, but actually it doesn't last very long. And that's why silence and aloneness and, uh, and, and, and solitude are things that people don't, don't uh, develop anymore. See, a lot of people, well I won't say a lot, but many people who come here, who enter into this sort of silent atmosphere, find it difficult. They're not used to it. So, um, <clears throat> there's that uh, underlying uh, frenetic energy of always, you know, like uh, always seeking the next buzz, right? What are you going to do on Saturday? Where are you going? What are you doing this next, next year? You know, what are you doing? Retire? It's always <laughs> like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, it's like, do you remember that animal, I think, what's it called now? Oh, that Rudyard Kipling cartoon, you know, with the elephant uh, and the Jungle, Jungle Boy. Yeah, do you remember the crow? It was crows, wasn't it, on the branch? On the on the branch, and they, they had this sort of Cockney thing going on. Like, what are you going to do then? Where, where are we going to go? <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> uh, so now that's that's the sort of more subtle uh, disconnection that we have with with. Um, that emotion of boredom, which remember, in its excessive, I mean, it leads to real deep depression, a sense of, of meaninglessness. You know, in the end, nothing is giving you that buzz, so your life becomes sort of meaningless, it becomes really empty. And then there's the others, which I think are a bit more obvious, you know, grief at the loss of something that you're attached to. Yearning for something is sort of a you know an incredible yearning that can never be satisfied. A sense of lack, frustration when you don't get it, anger, and this constant underlying anxiety, you know, about losing what you've got. So there's a heck of a lot of suffering underneath indulgence. I mean, suffering's bad enough. You know, ducker ducker. <laughs> the ordinary, ordinary pain and and and, uh, and pressure and stress of life. You know, just listening to a program there. Uh, teachers have a forty percent higher suicide rate than any other any other sector. I mean, that's stressful, isn't it? So um, <clears throat> that, in a sense, is you know that sort of encapsulates it, and then in a sense, you can just you know draw that out and the thing is to take it into your own lives when you feel bored or something you stop and say hold on see what's what this boredom is telling me how much how dependent I am on excitement on distraction on variety now how are you going to overcome boredom see so uh, the only thing you can do is exactly what the person is telling you is to get in contact with it right but and here's the trick you keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And as the boredom begins to fade away, it, trans it transforms into interest. And you can try that out. In fact, that's one of the things I really uh, thank my father for, because when I was a kid, I used to learn how to play the piano. 
And I remember saying to him, this is really boring, Dad, you know, he goes, ding, 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 ding. And he said, <laughs> and he said to me, he said, don't worry, son, he said, just keep playing it, you'll see. And, you know, I, I kept doing it. And of course, suddenly you're playing the tune. And the, bo- and the, and the boredom had gone then, you know, like you were all excited to play this little tune. So the answer to boredom is not variety. That's exactly what people think. I'm bored, what am I going to do? You know, what, what, what's the next thing I can, I can do to make myself excited? The answer to boredom is repetition. So as soon as you find yourself being bored with something, you keep doing it with your attention on the boredom, but with your in, with your attention on the boredom, so you know it's there, you're not, you're not trying to repress it, but your intention is to keep doing what you're doing with goodwill. Yeah, that's the answer. Has any comments on that? Anybody had that sort of experience? Yeah? yeah. Good. No? It's not something I from no, right, okay. No, that's good. Uh, good. Because there was enough you know, enough things happening anyway, you know, that you're not asking for, Yeah. Yeah, well if if your life's busy if your life's busy and you're interested and involved, then yes, it doesn't it doesn't particularly arise. I'm quite happy not doing anything. Oh well that's a gift. That's a gift, you see. Yeah. Laziness, well, it might be, of course, but <laughs> but if it if it, it you know just to just to spend some just time of the day, yeah. that's right, yeah. just to spend some time of the day in that, um, you know, uh, abiding in the present moment, mm-hmm. and to keep doing it in little bits every day, all the day, all day long, just to keep stopping, in between jobs, you know, just stop. And just abide in the present moment. And all the time you're drawing yourself down into this calmness. And you, you, you get a taste for it. That's how you want to be. You want to be calm. You want to just take your time. You want to take the rush out. Mm. It's quite difficult to do. I find that quite difficult to do. Um, at work, especially. Yeah. Wanting to hurry up. Well, I suppose it's a case of um, not getting up their nose, but sort of pretending to hurry up. Mm-hmm. But uh, you just <laughs> you just carry on, you just carry on doing what you're doing, you know. All <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you spoke of painful, difficult mental states and to just observe the mind. This seems difficult when in daily life, at work especially, especially say with resentment and obsessions. Any guidance, please? Um, yeah, when, when you're actually in the process of work or engagement, then yes, it is difficult. Um, it's more difficult than obviously just sitting here still and just observing the feeling as it comes up. Uh, but uh, even so, we we have to be to open, you know, sort of relax, just relax your awareness around things and just notice. That's the noting. You say, ah, there's there's this negative feeling, this resentment or obsessive stuff, you know. 
and if you're aware of it, it doesn't have power over you. See, that's the that's the big understanding. If you're aware of uh, some compulsive behaviour or some anger or something, in that in that way of being quite, you know, being aware of it, I mean, there's a little distance between you and that feeling, then it doesn't have power over you. But as soon as you move towards it, of course, then it begins to affect your behaviour. So... Yeah, when you identify with it. So it's, it really is a case of practising. Just like here we practise, you know. So... Uh, in ordinary daily life, as soon as this stuff comes up, see it as a as a way of practicing. And of course we fail. Of course we, you know, keep falling into the old ruts and the old habits. But you just keep you keep working with it. You see, keep working with it. And eventually, I think it becomes well, it's easier. It becomes easier to not to fall into the into old habits or so. But I don't, you know, like there's no easy way out of it. It is just hard, hard practice. Mm. And the resolution you make in the morning, and you keep repeating it through the day, you know. Like you can take just one thing, supposing there is a situation at work which is stressful, and there's maybe resentment or something. So make a determination at the beginning of the day, I'm going to watch this, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let it uh, grab me, so I can keep cool, I can keep... Uh, a certain objectivity about what's happening and then during the day keep reinforcing that resolution especially especially when you fall into that habit so you come out you notice it resolve you see and that way you can hopefully sustain a better objectivity about it and in that objectivity in that clarity usually some sort of solution arises so you know, even a, a small amelioration of the of the situation sometimes that you can, you know. Of, often it's because we don't know how to talk to people. We don't know how to approach them when uh, you know when they're being when they're messing with the mouth. Or 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 if we're in charge, we don't realise how we're messing them about. We think they're messing us about, but actually we're messing them about. <laughs> There's a lot of that goes on. There's a lovely book called Difficult Conversations which deals with all that. It's a really cracker of a book. You know, one of the things that comes to mind is when something goes wrong, you see, everybody looks for blame. You know, did you you, you did that, did you? You know, right, you know. Everybody looks for a scapegoat, somebody to sort of beat up. But if you take out the personalities and just look at the job, what went wrong with the job, right? And then you say, then the question is, well, how could how do we get it right? See? And that that takes all the all the um, all the grief out of it, because now the, the person who's made the mistake doesn't feel they're going to be victimised, blamed, your fault. But actually, there's a recognition that well, maybe the person needs help, or recognition is just human failure. I mean, you know, mistake, human mistake. That's a real. Uh, big breakthrough when you realise that blaming actually doesn't, doesn't do anything at all. If anything, it makes things much worse. Okay. I mean, one has to presume that if a person has made a mistake, that they already feel guilt, shame, upset by it, you know, afraid of consequences. You know, 
And uh, if we're if we're on the receiving end of blame and guilt, then of course you you feel it, you see. And then in a sense, you've got to accept that this person is deluded. That you know they they're just looking for somebody to blame to get out. And you have to, in a sense, bear with that. And then to turn around and say, well, you know, how can I do it better? Or how can you help me? Or you know. And if it's just a mistake, you just say, well, it's a human error. What can you do? You know. And then, if they fire you, you can get the union on them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a whole area of oh boy, human relations, yeah. Is contrition is that contrition part of intuitive inter, uh, intelligence? Huh? Intuition. Ah, oh, yeah, right. Excuse me. Um, well there is only one intelligence we only have one intelligence and that intelligence is um, that which knows that which understands and that is a quality of the Buddha the Buddha means the one who knows that's what it actually means the one who knows Buddha and the qualities of the Buddha are Satipanya. That's why I call this place Satipanya. That mindfulness, moment to moment mindfulness, being completely in the present, being open to the present, no resistance. And with it, this wisdom. This, this, just this natural connection with things. Now that is something which belongs to the unconditioned. The Buddha in his victory verse that we chant every morning says, I have achieved the unconditioned citta, the unconditioned heart or mind. Asankatan citta. I've, I've achieved that. When that is engaging with the world, it has to go through the mind, heart or body. So it's thought, emotions and action. And that's your eightfold path. Right speech, uh, right understanding, right attitude, there's your heart, right action, right speech, right livelihood. So, intuition, uh, in this sense, is the Buddha mind. That's what, that's what it is. It's that faculty which sees and understands the way things really are. And that's one of his pet phrases. To see and to see and understand the way things really are, jnana dasana yata bhutan. To see and understand, to understand and see dasana, how things have come to be. In other words, the process. That's the literal translation. You'll see it translated as how things are, but actually, uh, the literal translation is, which to me makes much more sense, to to understand and see how things have come to be process so um, intuition is the intuitive intelligence in in the definitions that I'm putting to it you know know, like the word intuition is often used for a feeling you know like you have an intuition about things yeah gut feeling Um, that is this intuition that we're talking about expressing itself at a non-intellectual level I connect. 
So, um, uh, for somebody who is very mental and thinks up the hair, you see, in a sense, maybe may may not have that particular way of of, uh, commun- of, of of understanding because they're always coming through thought, the intellect. Okay? And somebody who is at a more intuitional level, in this sense of a connect feeling, may not be able to express it. They often they have to express it through art or. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the definite. That's one of the sort of divide between the masculine and the feminine. You know, without saying men and women. <laughs> but, it, but it is a big problem <laughs> between between men and women. If if both are actually at the end of the scales, you know, at both end of the scales, it can it can be a bit of a disconnect. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but the looking at those two, I was um, I used to know this very old. She died now, Beatrice. Uh, she was, she was uh, I used to go to Dublin, stay and stay in her house. She was very old when I was teaching, when I go teaching there. And uh, she said to me that um, women, as she put it, think inductively and men deductively. Now, I've probably got that wrong. It's probably the other way around. So, the, uh, the, the, in, the inductive way, if I've got that right, is to go from the... No, I think that's deductive. Uh, forget it. One of them <laughs> is to go from the particular to the general. And the other one is to go from the general to the particular. So I said, oh, very interesting, dear. And it was at the time of the Afghan war. We'd just gone into um, Af- Afghanistan or something. And uh, we were talking about the war. And as we were talking, I suddenly realised, and I said, Beatrice, we're doing it, aren't we? She said, yes. So you just, you just don't know you're doing it, but that's the way you think. So uh, the masculine approaches from concepts, from a generalisation, the big picture. And when they come down to the specific, they have a different view from somebody who's coming from the specific, rising there to a general concept. So, in war, uh, a masculine approach may be the big picture. Well, look, you know, Al-Qaeda is a big danger, so we've got to go in there and sort them out. And okay, we kill a few people, eh, that's just collateral. You know, it's just one of those things that we have to do. From the particular... The actual person getting killed, <laughs> you see, where the other type of thing is, then you say, well, look, you know, this is suffering, this is killing people. So, therefore, we cannot go to war. And there, there you get your huge contradictions. And there we were, you see, arguing over a cup of tea. And without, without you know... And it wasn't, that, it wasn't that we were actually arguing over a point. We just weren't understanding each other's position, I mean we were, you know, I could see where she was coming, she was coming from and she understood where I was coming from, but there was no uh, there was uh, it was difficult for me to entirely sympathise with her situation as it was with her to sympathise with mine not that I agree with collateral damage (laughs) (laughs) as a consequence, but I was was, you know, like the big picture so um that form of intuition, uh, that's, that's, some, that's something else. You know, when, when normal people use it, uh, the, the way 
we're using it in terms of the Buddha mind is your original intelligence, the original mind, before it, the original uh, faculty, Satipanya. Uh, can you speak about gratitude and how it rises and what is it? Uh, well, it's a lovely, uh, it's a beautiful mental state, isn't it, to be thankful. And it just fills your heart with joy, doesn't it? You know, especially when somebody's done something in a very thoughtful, kind way, completely unasked, you know. And, um, well, I suppose what it is that's touching you is their love, isn't it? Their caring, their, their sympathetic joy to be, to be joyous with you, you know. And, of course, that, that increases your feeling of self-worth, of your uh, feeling of, of goodness within you, isn't it? When somebody either praises you or gives you something, or it's a way really of embracing the other, isn't it? I mean, just think when you give something to somebody, you know. I mean, in that in that very clear, generous way. And then, of course, there's what they give. It's helped. It's done something for us. So the natural response of the heart is to feel thankful gratitude and I think that when we feel that it's easier for us to to feel generous on our part that's why I always start the meta with people who've helped us now that's how we start in the monastic order we always thank uh, here I've tran here it's been translated as our benefactors but the chapter um, diaka the, the supporters that give who give us our four requisites uh, food, clothing, shelter and medicine. Those are your four basic requisites in anybody's life. It's not just a, a monastic requisite. You know? You're not destitute if you can have those four, are you? You know, if you've got enough food, enough clothing, enough sh shelter and medicine, you're not, abs you're not actually destitute. I would say that people who don't have that are destitute as opposed to being poor. That's an awful state to be in. So yeah, that's I think gratitude. And uh, to complete that little virtuous circle, you have renunciation, because when you give, you give up something that you could have used for yourself. And renunciation is is the path, you know. Like ultimately, we've got to renounce everything, we've got to let go of everything. You know? <coughs> Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Time and time and wealth, isn't it? You give up your time and wealth, whatever you can. Yeah, and um, as a sort of uh, like a virtuous <coughs> circle, you just keep going round it. You see, and the funny thing is, isn't it? I mean, the paradox is that when you do give with a good heart, it increases your own joy. Because you've not only got your joy in the giving, in letting go, in, in seeing the joy of others, um, but also in seeing the joy of others. You know, the, the, the way it's helped them. That's why, um, one of the reasons why, we're not supposed to say thank you. Buddhist monks aren't supposed to say thank you. 
because it well it, it undermines your gift because you may be saying it uh, for the thank you so sometimes when well one of the things that um, upsets people is, is if somebody doesn't say thank you see so you put a condition on the giving So the next time he gives something, somebody says thank you, you see. He says, you know, mm. so you just watch the mind. <laughs> I'm going to give him. I'm Yeah, and it's something that uh, you can develop by just, you know, going back through your lives and just seeing what you've been given. I mean, the amount of stuff the society gives us is, is absolutely incredible, which people don't, uh, you know. I mean, I, I go, when I'm, even now, I go down to the doctor, and I, I'm not paying for that, you know. It's all being paid for out of the national purse. The dentist, go right back to my early education. It's massive, you know. And it's all paid out of the sort of general purse. And nobody, everybody whinges, you know. <laughs> it's not good enough, it's like this. And, and they don't, and they don't uh, uh, contemplate, you know, that all this, this stuff is just given without question. I mean, like in education, obviously the education system is trying to do you, uh, trying to get you to, you know, do the best you can. But there's no penalty for not doing the best you can. There's no penalty for not uh, arriving at some great academic stages. See, same, same for me. I, I go to Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm greeted, I'm, I'm fed, I'm given shelter, medicine, uh, robes, and uh, nobody comes round knocking on the door and says, are, are you meditating or what? <laughs> <laughs> what have you got now? How far have you got? <laughs> what, 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 what jnana are you on? You know? Then they have a big meeting and say, well, he's not doing anything, kick, kick him out. <laughs> so it's funny, isn't it? The only thing... The only thing that is uh, really uh, um, asked is that you know generally you, you keep you keep the rule. And once you, once you start breaking the rule in any serious way, then of course people do stop supporting you. The, there's one question here I'll leave for another time because I, I, I need to look up a few things. Uh, it's about Mara. Um, can you explain what you mean by feeling emotions in the head? <laughs> um, uh, well, I think that's a, a sort of a more masculine thing. Again, not saying men or women. <laughs> so it's a bit of a more masculine thing. It's to do with... It, it, it's, it's a funny thing, but it's as though um, the masculine type feels emotions up here in the head. And when they go in the body, there's nothing there. Yeah. Now, I know this was very true for me, because one of the... one After I had a certain breakthrough, I can't remember what it was now, I remember this question coming up, which is a very strange question for the feminine type. The question was, what is an emotion? I hadn't actually felt an emotion, even though it was obvious I was angry, sad, 
the whole lot, but I hadn't actually felt that emotion. What was it? See? And it was only through meditation that finally I got in contact with the body and, you know, the emotion started coming through as felt things. I know, it's very strange. It's so, for it's so interesting. I remember when I first went to meditation classes and you started going down, you know, and people said, well, I don't know what I'm feeling, I think. You don't know what you're feeling. You know, you sort of, I wake up in the morning, I'm feeling, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and people didn't know what they were feeling, I found it astonishing. Yeah. Lots of people don't know what they're feeling. No. It's astonishing. It's in the head, isn't it? It's in the head, it's... Uh, it's sort of... Language really, what you feel as well. Mm-hmm. You know, actually have a language to say. To that. express it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely. Like that, don't get a choice, you know. No, 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 it's um. But it is. I mean, that's the. And what 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 you what you do is, of course, by coming off thought constantly through the meditation and coming into the body. Eventually, of course, it does begin to come through the body. That's what happens. You begin to feel it through the body. Conditioning, yeah. I mean, uh, um, I think it's because we're so headbound. Yeah. You know, our our whole attention is within thoughts and yeah. images. Yeah. You know, we're a very headbound society. Yeah. Um, I think other more less developed societies, so to speak, <laughs> were probably much closer to their hearts. Well, in fact, there's a very good example of that, isn't there? You know when the tsunami came? All the animals left the beach, you know. Oh, yeah. They all went off, but the humans still stood there. And in the Andaman Islands, the, um, uh, the people there also still had that connection to nature and went off. They just felt it in the air, something wrong, and they went off. Either they felt it like the animals directly that there was some something out there coming towards them or they felt the 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 fear coming from the animals themselves but one way or the other none of them got touched by it that's what i read and you know in our very intellectualized society you know words newspapers reading is you know it sort of lifted us up into this weird cloud <laughs> and I think that's one of the great gifts of uh, meditation and even therapies therapies do it is to bring you back into the body body centred medicine uh, therapies and then of course you know the insight is to realise that it's thought that's actually developing this stuff and that's when you start coming off thought I mean, you know, silly thought, this, this running away thought. 
every time you know like it's a constant effort every time you see your mind wandering off somewhere getting into an argument getting you know talking you know note it come back just keep coming back no matter what the resistance is no matter how much you want to go there just keep coming back into the present into the body and to be clear that that's not suppressing or repressing anything so long as you are aware of the emotional energy that's actually causing it Could you say something about the dharmas? Can they be understood as universal laws or getting to different types of dharma? Uh, confusion, is it? Yeah. Dharma, uh, dharma has various meanings. Oh, dharmas. It just means elements, actually. It's translated as elements, the different dharmas. Um, That chant we do in the morning, Sabe Dhamma Natati, you see. That's everything. Every little thing. And of course, things that are not real in themselves. Mm. But it's just pointing to elements. I think it's translated as elements. Elements of things. Well, those are the four great elements, as they call the Mahabhuta, the great elements. Um, but I think it goes into all sorts of things. I'll I'll sort of check that out, mm-hmm. look it up. Like well, they you know it's the elements that go into into some greater whole. Yeah. So you're constantly breaking things down into dharmas, yeah. little dharmas. Okay. Just as uh, time is broken down into these little moments that they call kalapas. That's the word for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why we say to go like the Kalapas. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, of everything. Right. Of everything. Yeah, the bits. The, the bits. bits. Yeah, the bits. Every time you, every time you deconstruct something, it turns into a, a dhamma. Ah. Mm. Right, okay. As I say, I'll come back to that. I'll, I'll try and make that more. Uh, I'll make this the last one. Um, uh, also, as these anti, what's that word? Or wholesome approach that can be used in conjunction with the tendency. Antidotes. Got it. Antidotes, yeah. Um, Are these antidotes or wholesome approach or wholesome. Are there. Or are there. Oh, oh, sorry. Are there antidotes or wholesome approach that can be used in conjunction with the tendencies of personality uh, that. (laughs) Well, it's it's not that bad actually. That (laughs) 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 and that you described on Monday night in in the talk. Laws. 
the W laws. W. A personality that. It's a killer, isn't it? That? I say it looks like a W and a six. <laughs> I, can't, I can't, can't work that one out. Definitely laws. I've got that. The W and the six. <coughs> I'll make the last question away from that. Are there antidotes for a wholesome? Oh, I've, I've made a mistake. Actually, that's why. Are there antidotes or wholesome approaches that can be used in conjunction with the tendencies of personality that we have, and that you described on Monday night in the talk? Oh, the tendencies, yes. The the anusaya, the yeah. tendencies. Yeah. Are there? Um, yeah. <coughs> uh, well, the antidote, uh, not surprisingly, is to do the opposite. That's uh, basically it. Um, so the antidote to, uh, uh, you know, feeling uh, stinginess is to be generous. Mm-hmm. You know, do the opposite. But uh, all we have to be careful of is not to be aggressive towards the negative within us. See, that's the, that's the mistake we make. We make a judgment about it that's bad. See, that's negative. See, it's just the conditioning, you know doesn't mean to say it's not wholesome but it's when we say I'm bad and then you, you sort of make that identity with it and that's, that's harmful and then you do the opposite you do the opposite um, take anything take any, uh, anything which you can see is unwholesome and, and, and just look at the opposite and, then, and, that you, and that's, that's what you do but you've got to be um, in some things, you have to be slightly careful about the opposite. Um, I'm thinking here of uh, lust. So the antidote to lust is to look at the disgusting nature of the body, and that definitely undermines it. But if you keep doing that, you get really disgusted, and it's very depressing. <laughs> so in certain antidotes, you sort of do it to sort of balance it out, you see, and then and then they they sort of disappears. Um, food uh, the antidote to overeating is to just imagine what's happening to your food going through your system and what it ends up as exactly <laughs> see and, and if you follow every, every mouthful down there it definitely undermines your, your, your greediness right but eventually if you keep doing that you stop eating because it's so disgusting so it, you know like you've got to with any of these uh, more visceral habits we have uh, just, just, just do the opposite but you just have to be careful. When it comes to virtues, then of course that, that doesn't pertain because there's no limit to generosity. It's always got to be wisdom, you know. There's a lovely story about St. Francis, actually. Uh, you know, St. Francis, give everything away, give everything away. You know, and he himself only had these rag robes. Uh, uh, if you ever go to Assisi, uh, just go and see. It's, it really is very moving, especially for somebody in Buddhism and knows the life story of the Buddha because his robes are there and it is actually a patchwork higgledy-piggledy patchwork uh, sackcloth mm-hmm. that's what he wore he just picked up all bits of sackcloth and sewed them all together yeah it's quite it's quite moving um, and one of his brothers came back with no clothes he'd given his robe away so he had to make a rule you can give everything away but not your robe <laughs> so you've got to be you've got to be slightly intelligent about these things 
that's a great story, that. <coughs> so, um, I think we'll leave that there uh, for this evening, but uh, there are quite a few, so maybe I'll carry on tomorrow, just finish them off and see if I can answer that other question. Um, I'd like to just, just look it up. It's about Mara, the evil one. So I can only hope uh, our little discussions and question answering has been of some assistance. May you be fully liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.